0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Last with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's podcast hour and BBC Radio Manchester. 1,
1: 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, seven.
0: episode I'm really honored to say that I'm joined by Richard Frediani, the editor of BBC Breakfast. We're going to talk all about his career and his roots in Preston. So Richard, thank you for taking the time out of your really busy schedule. Hey Lucy, no problem. Talking to me, how are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Good. I'd like to go back to when you were a child growing up in Preston. Were you sort of outgoing and interested in what was going on around you? Um,
1: yes, but I probably didn't know about that at the time. I was, when I was growing up in Preston, my, my main passion was was music. I was very much into, I wanted a career as a, a disc jockey. I remember doing, uh, certainly as a teenager, I used to do sort of mobile discos for uh, a, a man who ran an agency in Freckleton. And I'd, I'd turn up at weddings and birthday parties and all manner of events. Um, as a DJ and that, that was my passion but I, I, at the same time I always had an interest in what was going on. I, I remember and I've told this story to, to friends in the office a few times uh, way back in the 19, late 1970s early 1980s there used to be a programme on Radio 1 uh, at 7 o'clock in the evening where they'd have some uh, person who was in the news etc and uh, they used to mention it on the breakfast show on Radio 1 uh, and suggest that if you had a question for this person Uh, you could uh, phone this number and leave the question and if they liked the question they would ring you back and so I used to on my way to school in the morning used to think of what question I would ask this person and then I'd go to a mobile not to a mobile to a telephone box because there were no mobile phones at the time to a telephone box and put my two p's in and ring this number and leave a question and leave them my home telephone number hoping they would ring me up uh, that evening and sure enough a lot of times they did and I'd beyond speaking to politicians and sports stars at the time and asking them their question. And that I didn't realise at the time, but clearly I had an interest in news and current affairs, which only really sort of came to fore as I sort of went through my later stages of education.
0: And you also had a family business, a fish and chip shop, Umberto's on Mortary Lane. Were you working there from a young boy
1: oh yeah from about eight years old it was my 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 summer job yeah my my parents my mum and dad uh, established Umberto's which they've recently sold and yeah. and have now retired but they they bought what what is known to many the one by the docks um, in 1973 uh, having run an, another one which was just near what was then uh, Preston Polytechnic but but it's obviously now Lancashire Polytechnic having run a different one for about 18 months but they bought bought that in late 1973 and and we as a family all moved there, me and my three sisters and my mum and dad and lived above it uh, for the entire time until I I moved out in the the mid-1990s when I I established and bought my own home and uh, uh, so yes it was sort of expected of me uh, to work in the shop and uh, you know I started working I remember in the sort of summer where I'd be uh, getting the chips up from the cellar downstairs as a little boy and you know I'd get paid a few pennies for, for helping out on a lunchtime etc and this was in the days when the docks was still open and British Aerospace which no longer is there anymore used to uh, dominate Strand Road etc and then as I got older and got into my sort of teens I would give my mum and dad a night off by working in the shop and managing the business for them so you know my dad who fronted it my mum and my dad who were there sort of seven days a week uh, could have some time off and obviously it was useful income as a teenager to go out and buy those records that, that would then enable me to do those mobile discos at the time
0: did you ever get fed up with the smell of oh the fish no chips?
1: well yeah it is it is not the smell uh, well not sorry not the the taste of fish and chips but certainly the smell i mean it is it's one of those astonishing things that you know it doesn't matter whether you work there or live there if, you, if you're in the shop for about 30 minutes you do it just soaks into your sort of clothing and pores and Unless you have a sort of shower, if you then go out, people go, oh, I can smell fish and chips. And <laughs> it, it clings to your body. But um, I was very lucky uh, there. You know, my mum and dad's shop was a very popular uh, business. Um, so, you know, the ability to have free free fish and chips whenever you wanted. I'm surprised I'm not 20 stone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I guess that work ethic being sort of taught to you from an early age helped you in... Getting into journalism and that kind of career. Yeah, I
1: think I think uh, you know, I think you always look to your parents, hopefully, to establish sort of part of your characteristics. You know, I, I'm lucky; I've got uh, a son and two daughters, and I, me and my wife try to instil some values into them. And certainly, my mum and dad instil values into me and my sisters about about things like a work ethic. Um, and encouraged us on and supported us in so many ways as as a lot of parents do for their children and yes and you some of that rubs off on you and you know my mum and dad you know worked very hard because actually the main reason was they wanted to give me and my sisters as good an upbringing as possible and that's certainly something that rubbed off on me Um, and that's I, I hold dear as well
0: and then, when did you show more of an interest into the journalism side, studying journalism at UCLAN?
1: I think I think um, one, when I when I did my A levels, uh, I'd sort of started to develop an interest. But and and you know, as as a lot of people who've been doing their A levels now, you sort of think about what's your career going to be. What do you want to go into? And actually, my first choice then was probably, if I wasn't going to be a Radio One DJ, was probably to go into teaching. Um, but I didn't maybe perform as well as I should have uh, at my A-levels, not, not something I would recommend to others. Uh, and I ended up going to Portsmouth Polytechnic initially to do a degree in economics. And whilst I was there, literally in the first year I was there, I did get involved a little bit in student politics. And uh, very quickly developed that sort of side of my interests. And as a result, that gave me a bit of an exposure to the media. And I used to sort of lead a lot on, on publicising events. And as a result, I sort of started to <clears throat> develop more of an interest in how that sort of career worked, what went on with sort of radio stations and newspapers and television stations, etc. And as I noticed that more and more of my stuff was getting picked up, I was sort of thinking, oh, maybe this is a career I should look at. And, uh, and then by the time I finished my time in, in, in Portsmouth, um, I sort of developed quite an interest into it and, and looked into it and discovered then there were far fewer courses than there are now but one of those was at Lancashire Polytechnic as it was at the time uh, and decided to apply and I did a postgraduate a graduate there but there are lots of courses now around the country you know, Salford included, Cardiff, Falmouth, etc that are, are very popular and turn out some very good journalists
0: And then you... So you graduated from UCLan and then you moved to Red Rose Radio. Was that sort of your first post?
1: Yeah, I, I, was, I was also very lucky to, uh, when I applied for the course at, um, at Lancashire Polytechnic, uh, at the same time there was a very famous broadcaster in the 1780s called Russell Harty, who used to have like a prime time programme on, uh, on BBC actually. And he sadly died um, uh, a few years before, but he, he was very much a Lancashire man through and through and was one of the founders of Red Rose Radio as it was at the time uh, but also obviously because of his BBC connections uh, had an affinity to uh, Radio Lancashire as well so they set up a scholarship in his honour and I was the first recipient I went through an interview process etc and I was the first recipient of that and one of the uh, opportunities it gave you as well as uh, financing the course that that I was lucky to get onto was also an opportunity to do some spells of work experience at both Red Rose Radio and Radio Lancashire so I did a bit of both and decided that you know hopefully my career would develop at one of them and I was fortunate to get a role at Red Rose Radio when I, when I graduated in 1990.
0: And what was it like there sort of fresh out of uni? Uh, did-
1: like, like, like anybody going into a job for the first time or an industry for the first time, you know, you're nervous, you don't want to make a mistake, you want to try and impress people. You're also looking for people to support you. And I think what's probably true in life in whatever career you're going to, you also um, take, uh, you look for somebody to give you some help and support. And there were a couple of people uh, in the newsroom there. Uh, one called Keith Macklin, who's, who's sadly no longer with us, who was a, a very uh, experienced journalist, Uh, uh, who gave me um, a lot of support, Um, as well as the sports editor, Nigel Reed, who taught me some of the basics. I was a lot younger. And so I learned a lot from my time at Red Rose Radio. I was there for for four years, um, during the time which it then merged into Rock FM, as a lot of people might know it now. But uh, I was very honoured and privileged to work in, in the church. It was very different times to what people might know broadcasting now. You know, we were working with typewriters. Mobile phones were only just about being introduced. There were no computers, uh, everything was on tape, and you used to edit with razor blades and little bits of tape. But I learnt a lot in my time at Red Rose Radio, and it gave me a, a fantastic grounding for the uh, subsequent career that I had.
0: Was it harder to sort of find the news without you know, without the internet, without mobile phones? I bet you had to work so much harder. Than yeah,
1: was, some... No, I think, I think look, look, news develops, uh, and how you find news uh, changes all the time, and actually that's one of the things you always have to be aware of uh, in your career. But no, at the time we used to have to, we'd have a sheet of all the telephone numbers of all the uh, local police stations. And one of your chores between nine and 10 in the morning was to ring round those um, police stations uh, to see if there'd been any stories of interest. Uh, Other things that you would do is, uh, you know, if you wanted to track down somebody, you had to go through phone books rather Mm. than Google search their numbers, (laughs) etc. So it was, it was a very different way of working uh, then to, to, to where we are now, but but equally, you know, one that you know even now you have challenges when you're 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 following stories. So so you know I learnt a lot of very basic skills there, and some skills that I still hold cherish uh, hold dear to me and cherish now.
0: And so after Red Rose Radio, you moved to London, is that right? Yeah, I
1: was, I was at that point, I was uh, uh, keen to still be a reporter. Uh, I thought reporting was maybe where my uh, skills were, although I was always quite um, not very fond of my voice. When I used to listen to my broadcast voice, I was always sort of questioning whether it was good enough or strong enough. But I was lucky enough to uh, get a, a role as a national reporter, or Independent Radio News. Now they're known as IRN, is is the short term term for them, and they're the network provider that provides the national news for all the commercial radio stations, or most of the commercial radio stations, in the country. And I went, and that was at the time run by ITN. It's run by Sky now. Uh, but I, so I went down to uh, London in 1994. I was in the process of getting married at the time. Uh, we didn't have any children at that point, and I remember saying to my wife, to what was then going to be my wife. I'll only be going for six months, and 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 lasted in various roles ten years down in <laughs> London. But I used to commute up and back between London and uh, and Preston uh, quite a lot. Uh, and I spent just over sort of three years as a reporter, and it, it was fantastic. I I you know I'm going to Hong Kong for the handover. I went on the 1997 election campaign where I followed Paddy Ashdown and the Liberal Democrats around the country. Uh, for for quite a few weeks. Uh, I remember going to some terrible events like um, the early stages of the Fred West criminal investigation. It's back in the news at the moment. And I feel really old because I'm sort of explaining to some of the journalists that I work with now how I remember being there right at the start of that investigation and explaining people that they should speak to now for the story and for what the latest developments are.
0: And did you prefer sort of the local aspect when you're up here uh, reporting or did you like sort of moving away from Preston and sort of getting a bit of a bigger feel for the news? I
1: think think both uh, in different ways both are really really important Uh, local news is so important and I think maybe isn't valued as much as it should be you know all of us if I take you know people who live in Preston and Read the Lancashire Evening Post, or listen to Red Rose Radio as it was, or Radio Lancashire as it is now, uh, uh, or, or watch the local news on Granada or BBC Northwest. You know, there's huge amounts of really important information that matters to you uh, as a listener or as a reader. And you look at how that's developed now with you know searching micro sites and places like Blog Preston and the LEP website. And and there's something really really important about about um doing stories that matter to the community that you live in and and especially if you can make a difference and i really applaud those people who work in the in at that level because that's really important and often you know particularly when it's a story that has national prominence you know the national uh, broadcasters and radio and print and will all turn up and they're really only interested for the headlines and then they go away And actually, the local media is left behind to sometimes pick up the pieces. So, you know, I applaud the work of people who work in local media. Some of the best stories often start at a local level before they're picked up nationally. But at the same time, there's you know there's always sort of something uh, exhilarating about working in national news. You know, particularly when it's a major story that you know that when that story gets broadcast or when that moment uh, is is revealed to the audience. It's the sort of thing that people will stop and watch or listen to, and if you're at the heart of it, whether you're the reporter on the scene, or you're one of the editorial team who's putting it together, that's a really, really important moment. That you know sometimes are ones that many, many years later you still remember.
0: And then, was that the only sort of radio work you did? Did you then switch yeah, to Yeah, so, so, the...
1: so in about what, what, what? Again, sort of sometimes you only you only realise in hindsight, and and I I see this all the time now as a a manager, that that I used to go to meetings at ITN with not just uh, the radio team that I worked with, uh, but also the television team, and you'd be discussing ideas and stories that were around, and I used to suggest ideas at meetings, and I didn't realise, I just thought I was just like, you know, being keen and suggesting ideas, but more senior people were sort of picking up and commenting, not to me, but uh, about me that, that, you know, I seem to be sort of somebody who seems to always be enthusiastic, having a lot of ideas, so I was approached about a a role in television at the time, uh, on what they call the planning desk, and it was quite useful because at the same time I was sort of thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to make it as a reporter and maybe I need to sort of rethink how I develop my career, so uh, I accepted a role on what they call the planning desk uh, at ITN for ITV News. Uh, which was basically your role is to start plotting what stories you're going to do the next day or the following week. And, and, and you know, a small little side story in it is I joined the same day or I joined the TV team the same day as a, another young man who was joining from Yorkshire TV. Who it was his, his, his first job in network TV. So a, a, a young man called Tim Singleton. Uh, And Tim and I not you know became very good friends very quickly because we were doing the same sort of role and Supporting each other and you know, he uh, has become one of my best friends. He's godfather to one of my children now and uh, uh, He runs the foreign news department at Sky News now So, you know, sometimes this industry sort of brings you together with people that you sometimes will then become lifelong friends with
0: and do you think then when you were into TV that it was more for you than radio?
1: Um, I think, yeah, I used to, I used to, when I worked in radio, I used to say, oh, I'll never work in television. Uh, it all looks too complicated. There seems to be too many things that go on. But um, once I got into it and I started to learn the skills and see the different roles that people played and how it's very much a team game. I mean, you know, one of the things, particularly broadcast, uh, but it's probably true of all uh, media it's about working as a team it's not just about any one individual you know you might just see the presenter or see the reporter but there's so much work that goes into that from people behind the scenes and frankly without that work whether that's technical or editorial uh, it would never get to air and I appreciated and started to learn the various skill sets that went into that and as I moved from doing the planning desk to becoming a news editor so then your job was the sort of day by day as, as stories unfolded you're redirecting coverage and moving people to different locations. I, I realised the sort of the the buzz that you got with that, and the importance, and 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 fell in love with working in television.
0: And I guess as well, the news, the way it's presented visually compared to just audio. There's a, there's a different there's another element to it, and you've got to sort of write to the visuals that you get. So it's yeah. another level yeah. of storytelling.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, I mean, you know, depending on what. Uh, medium you're working on whether that's television radio or print or online there are different things that you can bring your story alive with and certainly in the case of television you know the pictures are obviously vitally important just as the words just as the interviews are and the art is how you knit those together And, and some of the most brilliant correspondents I've worked with in television actually less is more is one of the phrases they come with out with and what they mean by that is if your pictures are so good you actually don't need many words to go with them you know you can let the pictures do the talking and let your and keep your words to a a minimal there is an art in putting together a television report uh, you know when you've actually only got a limited amount of time and you're conveying some really important issues and that art of marrying pictures with words with sounds is far more difficult than people expect or, or, or understand but when you see it done well by some of the most brilliant correspondents in television then you understand and appreciate it.
0: Why did you move back from London?
1: So I moved by, by 2004 um, uh, my family was growing with sort of three young kids my wife was doing a brilliant job and decided that maybe I needed to be at home a little bit more And a job came up to run Granada television uh, in 2004 which I applied for and and was lucky enough to to get and so at that point I I moved back to uh, uh, working in the northwest uh, even though uh, because I've been sort of living here all the time but traveling between Preston and London Uh, uh, but (laughs) as probably my family would be the first to point out uh, I may have been at home uh, most nights but I was probably away even more because the way I tend to work is quite manic. Um, and but I was lucky enough to run the news department at Granada for seven and a half years, and and again learnt a lot from it.
0: And you picked up two BAFTAs whilst you were picked there.
1: Picked up what well, one while I was there. The, the, the second one came after I'd, I'd left, uh, and and the second one came when I was at ITN. But uh, yeah, we were we were. Um, uh, it was a, a really. Interesting time moving to Granada because ITV at a regional level, at a TV level, news level was changing a lot. There was a lot of new technology coming in, there was being brutally honest, uh, the company had to save a lot of money, so it meant making people redundant and changing the way that we worked. But at the same time, you know, in a region like Granada where you have, you know, some huge news stories as well as some amazing sports stories, you know, I sort of think about the time that I was there teams like liverpool and manchester united getting to and winning the champions league finals in istanbul and in moscow but um you know there are some huge news stories just because of the size of the uh, patch you know outside london it's probably the best and i would argue actually it's even better than london and when i joined was just after the terrible morecambe bay cockling tragedy um and so i knew at some point uh, in my first few years uh, there would be a, a court case um Taking, trying to bring to justice those people who were behind uh, the tragic death of the 23 Chinese cocklers who died uh, in Morecambe Bay. Um, and for me, it was important about trying to tell the stories. You know, They weren't just numbers, they weren't just uh, anonymous people who drowned uh, in Morecambe Bay. And uh, we as a team, uh, you know, went to China, uh, tried to tell their stories. Spoke to the families as well as did some investigations here about the regulations around why uh, what went on in Walken Bay that night was allowed to go on and you know we put together a half-hour program that that went out on the evening that the court case came back um, and it started to pick up some attention there was some absolutely brilliant journalism by people like Elaine Wilcox and uh, as, as happens in television uh, there are various awards events that, uh, that happen every year and it started to get some pick-up at various awards events and, uh, and one of them, you know, probably one of the most high-profile ones is the BAFTA TV Awards and uh, we, were, we entered it and, you know, I was amazed when we were shortlisted uh, that was a, an honour in itself but then, um, you know, to be there um, on that night and, and, you know, your names read out as the winner uh, was one of the highlights of my career and you know particularly at that point no regional news program had ever won that award it only ever previously been won by network providers like you know itv news at 10 or bbc news at 10 or sky news etc so it was a superb recognition and and one that i'll always remember
0: and was that sort of your time at ITV, was it just the seven and a half years and then you moved to BBC? No, no, no. So,
1: so I, I, did, I did sort of run Granada until 2012 and then an, an opportunity came up to go back to ITN uh, but this time to um, edit the news programme as opposed to be on the, what they call the news gathering side of things. So my previous job had been about sending reporters out to, to get, the, get the news whilst what they call a programme editor is a person who puts the programme mm. together Uh, and decides the final running order and and that job came up to uh, edit what they call the ITV News at 6.30 which is now presented by Mary Nightingale, Uh, was at the time although with Alistair Stewart primarily at the time Uh, so I was approached about that role, decided actually that's that's a new challenge for me so maybe I'll go back and do that so I went back to do that at the start of 2012 and uh, and was the editor of that, and did a, a combination of mainly the ITV News at 6.30, did a spell doing ITV News at 10, and sort of saw it through the changes where they moved from Mark Austin and Jim Getchenham to to, to to Tom Bradby taking over, uh, and learnt a lot again. You know, sort of some huge moments, uh, some major sort of stories that, in effect, you're in charge of, as it goes out, mm. you are making the moment by moment moment decision about what we do, how we tell it, in what we tell it, what order we do it in, tackling any program problems whilst you're live on air, etc. And you know, again, had a fantastic time uh, and learnt a lot from it.
0: What was more not rewarding, but what was maybe more challenging, doing the whole Granada or the six thirty bulletin? Um,
1: the, the cha- they're all challenging in their own way. Uh, you know, running a newsroom as I did at Granada. Uh, Comes with a lot of challenges because you're not just managing the editorial content; you're managing, you know, the 50 or 60 staff um, that work there. Um, you know, running a specific program uh, like I did at sort 6:30 of uh, was, you know, that's, that's watched by, you know, about 4 million people a night. Uh, you know, is a huge responsibility too. But at the same time, you know, you wouldn't just do that. You'd often do some special programs where you might be on air for five or six hours continuously and you know what you've always got to remember is that the bbc and itv you know still get the most dominant audiences so when big things happen you know whether it's some terrible event or some major celebration like a wedding or whatever a royal wedding you know that's what people will tune to and watch to and itv plays an important role in that so so you know both were a challenge and and i think what the important thing in 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 any career is is if you're continuing to challenge yourself that's a really important part of what you do
0: and that was presumably based in london yeah again yes
1: (laughs) yes yes my poor family i abandoned them again to to spend half the week in london and half the week in in preston
0: was that tiring just that commute I mean I know it's only two and a bit hours on the train but
1: (laughs) I quite enjoyed it I mean by by then I was regularly I used to initially I used to drive but in the end I used to uh, I I would get the train and put my trains ahead etc and actually it was quite you know technology had changed I could download some programs onto my little iPad and watch that you know on the train on the way home and actually I I would use the commute once a week once on the way down there and once on the way back just to actually de-stress a bit and or to think about things a bit. Um, so actually it was a little bit of me time mm. that I quite enjoyed. So I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, there were times when, you know, it might get to a Sunday night or a Monday night if I wasn't working till Tuesday, where I'd be thinking, ah, oh, right, back to, back to London. Mm. You know, just as much as you might get to the end of a busy week and, and sometimes, and I would get a specific train that would terminate at Preston because I might get on it at London i be so tired, I would fall asleep. So at least I knew that as it terminated at Preston, you I wouldn't end up in Edinburgh. Lancaster or Edinburgh <laughs> or somewhere further north.
0: So then in autumn 2019, you took over from Adam Bullamore and you're now yep. the editor at BBC Breakfast. Yep. How did that come about and how did you find the switch from ITV to BBC? So
1: there was, very simply, there was a job advert uh, and I thought about it and I'd never worked at the BBC uh, uh, but always sort of thought wonder what it's like uh, you know very different challenge you know might be doing the same thing but you know the BBC plays a particularly special role in people's lives uh, at the same time as going back to what I just sort of said about a challenge I you know I thought to myself i um, you know at that point I was 52 53 uh, you know here's potentially one more challenge in my career um you know if it works out brilliant and if it doesn't work out well you know i'd like to sort of think that i've got enough experience that i'd get work sort of somewhere else so applied for it was lucky enough to be offered the role in late 2019 and took over at the start of october that year and um it's it's very different working at the bbc mm-hmm. um in terms of the way you're viewed by the public you know because the license fee payer pays for the the, the the service and therefore there's an expectation, as well as as you know, understandably the public, uh, you know, saying we pay our licence fee, we expect this sort of level of standard. Breakfast itself is a is a huge program. I mean, it's on air from between three and four hours every morning, seven days a week. You know, I remember thinking to myself one simple stat that still amazes me that if you add together one week's worth of BBC Breakfast, i.e. you know each of the transmissions from Monday to Sunday, in time, that is one day's worth of BBC One. So one-seventh of all that goes out on BBC One every week just comes from that studio in Salford and is run by the team that I edit. And that's a huge responsibility. Uh, It's a live programme, so lots of things can change whilst you're on air. It's not just a news programme. I think sometimes people misunderstand and think it should be like just pure news. It's not, it's what you call a news magazine programme, yeah. so it does everything from tells you what the main news of the day is, through to speaks to celebrity guests, you know, the weather is important, local news and information, you know, has a range of different issues that, that, that you will look at. And you yeah, the reality is, is not every single viewer is going to like every single story that you do and you know, not every single viewer is going to agree with every single issue that you run um, the important thing is does it resonate with the vast majority of audiences yes it still gets 6 million viewers a day it still Which gets is
0: such a lot. 10
1: million viewers a week and and, and 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 as you say you're right to point that out lucy it's a lot you know it's a huge audience that therefore you have a huge responsibility and so you know when there are mistakes you know they get amplified mm. a lot more particularly as because it's the BBC... You know, you will often find a lot of national newspapers will then write up stories about terrible, the BBC has done this, etc. So it's a huge responsibility and one that I take very, very seriously and one that I'm very fortunate to have.
0: You see, I've found that sort of going into the industry, doing my studies, that there seems to be a bit of um, BBC, the ITV.
1: Yeah.
0: Is that the case... When you're there, is it always sort of like we want to get more, figure, more yeah. figures, more figures than Good Morning Britain? Look,
1: absolutely, and to be honest, you know, I'll talk about it in the context of BBC Breakfast, but that's true of of the industry as a whole. You know, if you're working in newspapers, certainly at national level, you know, the Mail want to sell more than the Sun, the Times want to sell more than the Telegraph, etc. You know, if you're working in local radio, you know, if you're working at an independent local radio station. You want to try and get a bigger audience than your BBC rival, and the same goes. It's true of, of working at BBC and, and ITV. It was true when I was editing the six thirty. I'd see what my audience was compared to the BBC at six, the two news at tens. We'll often look at that, you know, because it's a, it's a measurement of popularity. So yes, it's absolutely true at breakfast, and particularly, you know, as as they're, they're as I say, they're more news magazine shows and just news and therefore there is an added edge of competition between between those two programs and particularly when piers was doing gmb he would be obsessive about it yeah uh you know and and you know that's important to have that competitive edge you know i don't think there is anything wrong with competition you know whether that's competition to get a guest on that the other channel hasn't got or to tell a story that the other side hasn't got that's that's an important. That's one of the important parts of doing the job, but it's not it's not the only part of doing the job. There will be stories that Good Morning Britain will run that we would never touch, and there will be stories that we would run uh, that they wouldn't be interested in. And that's some of that is down to deciding who your audience is, who's watching, what you think you're trying to achieve with your program, and what the expectations of that audience is.
0: What would you say, BBC Breakfasts? audience is
1: so so i think i think there's a couple of things in in pure terms it's an older audience it's uh you know the vast majority of them are sort of 50 plus um but i think the most important thing that i i think about breakfast is and what i think uh i'm lucky to have when 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 i do breakfast is it's the one part of the day where the audience wake up and whether it's tv radio print online whatever they're hungry for information. Most people, the vast you know, don't get me wrong, there are obviously some people who work through the night who, who are maybe just going to bed so so or watching in a different way, but the vast majority of the audience have been asleep for six, seven, eight, nine hours, or whatever, however long. And they wake up in the morning and they sort of want to know what's going on in the world. Now that might be they want to know if there's a text message from their son and daughter or, you know, their loved one, etc. But they also want to know what's the weather going to be like today. You know, what's happened in the news overnight. You know, what's happening in the world today. And therefore, as a result, they'll switch on the TV, in my case, or the radio, or or look at something online to find out that information. So actually, it's the one point of the day. Whereas later on, by 6.30 and by 10, people have sort of had an awareness of what's going on. Breakfast is the one point of the day where you've got empty minds to work with. And you've got the ability to... Help give them information that they may find valuable. Take it. Take the weather as the most simple example, and actually the sort of thing that, if I do audience uh, surveys, is the number one thing that that the audience is interested in. From a very simple point of view, do I need a coat today? Is it going to rain? Yeah. You know, is it going to be my kids are going on a walk today? Is it going to be sunny or not? Just simple things like that are bits of information that they will pick up whilst they're doing lots of other things. You know, most people's morning routines are. Getting out of bed, having a shower, getting dressed, drying your hair, you know, doing whatever you need to do. And, off, and the television will be on there as a source of information. And my job is to distract them from what they're doing, stop them from drying their hair for five minutes. You know, make them late for the bus ultimately, because there's been something on the programme that they may have wanted to watch.
0: When you came in as editor, did you have any new sort of goals or ambitions with the program that you wanted to change? Yeah, yeah
1: I wanted to make it newsier. I wanted it to make it uh, um, uh, do stuff that would make a difference. Uh, you know, I felt there was a bit of uh, reordering of the structure of the program, how it's put together, uh, that would would help. I desperately want a new studio. I still haven't got it yet, but uh, that would be the ultimate aim. But as a good example. You know, we had huge success in the last 12 months. With uh, we, we did the exclusive on Marcus Rashford and his campaign over free school meals, which led to a, a change in government policy or the awareness that we've uh, brought to motor neurone disease through yeah. the case of Rob Burrow, you know, which, which I've seen across the media, you know, from newspapers to TV to radio. And they're sort of stories that we've championed, and stories that we were at the forefront of, and stories that we first told our audience before other people. And those sorts of stories have fundamentally changed people's lives. You know, the amount of money and research that motor neurodisease disease now gets as a result of the coverage we've given, the changing government policy on free school meals as a result of the interview that we first did with Marcus Rashford, and then highlighted the the, the campaign. You know, they've benefited and helped and supported people as a result of the journalism that's come out of my program.
0: Yeah, and also, was it with Captain Tom Moore? Were you the yeah. first of that yeah. as
1: well, Yeah, so Captain Tom, Captain Tom I mean, to be fair to, to my colleagues in local media, and I said earlier about the importance of local yeah. media, his story was first highlighted by uh, journalists who were working in east of, England, uh, east of England, by both the local BBC and yeah. local ITV station. But from a network point of view, yes, we were. We were the first ones to pick up on his, his story and built a relationship with uh, Captain Sir Tom and and his daughter Hannah um, very early on uh, which benefited us through particularly that point in April where both when he finished his walk and when the fly pass took place which we were intimately involved in and as a result we had a level of access and an exclusiveness of access that despite and you mentioned the competition with Good Morning Britain despite Good Morning Britain desperately wanting to get in on it and, and, you know, doing quite a lot of stuff themselves. Because of that relationship we built, which is one of the most important things when you're a journalist, it's about building relationships with people. But because of that relationship we built, uh, it meant we had an access and coverage of Captain Sir Tom's story at that time, which was way beyond any of our rivals.
0: And also that story brought so much happiness in a time. I guess... You sort of have had a year plus. It's been a different year of presenting the news. It's probably been more challenging. And do you feel like you've had the responsibility of finding maybe more good news stories to even the program out? Or? Yeah, I
1: think. There's, there was a, to, to be honest, and you're right about the last the last year being a, a year unlike any other. Yeah. Um, and and the challenge the challenge you have on a daily basis. You know, whether it's during something like the pandemic we've been through or or uh the you know just doing the program on normal times is that mix of you know news that you have to tell combined with trying to bring some joy into people's lives and and that's often one of the things that you'll get a lot of audience comment about is whether you've got that balance right and i can tell you for sure that there'll always be people who will say you should be doing more news and then there'll be people sort of saying, "Don't give me such grim news. I want, I want something that will cheer me up, etc." Mm. And getting that balance right is really important. But yes, I think I think along with telling some of the terrible events that have, that go on in society, you know, it is important to bring people some happiness, some joy, put a smile on people's faces, because you know the world isn't all a bad place. There are some powerful and positive stories out there. And and you're right to point out that in effect, Captain Tom was sort of the, the best example of that. You know, in April last year, well, when we were particularly at the height of that first lockdown, the sort of the positivity of his story and how it affected and connected with so many people was one of the highlights of the, of that month.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was in my final year of uni last year doing my dissertation and analysing a whole week of BBC Breakfast (laughs) programmes tallying how many times it was a good news story a bad news story, all the different news values it was quite a long process but
1: (laughs) uh,
0: Sir Captain Tom Moore was there all the time and and what I found from it, because I was trying to find out if news is mostly bad, if it's good Mm. that the majority was good news, even if it was an overarching sort of bad story like covid it'd be someone who'd recovered and you'd you'd used it really in I think I think I think
1: yeah I think I think you see it's interesting you should use the phrase about good or bad news Mm. right I think the way I I try and look at it and, and the way we will often discuss stories in the newsroom is why should somebody at home care or connect with the story that that we're doing and as i say you know are you going to be able to do that with every single person who's watching well no that's that's an unrealistic expectation but but what you're trying to sort of say is you know why for the majority of your audience will the story that you've chosen to do the issue you've cho- chosen to raise why will that matter to sort of somebody at home and and you know it might be about some de- health development or or as you sort of say you know there was those good examples last year of people who had initially got COVID and recovered from it and they were quite powerful stories and and actually gave hope to a lot of people because I think you know early on in the pandemic a lot of people were thinking oh my word if I get COVID I'm going to die Mm. and actually what what they those stories demonstrated was actually that's not the case and you know with a lot of support and help from some wonderful people in the NHS um, the opposite is true.
0: And can you talk me through sort of a typical day for in the life of a BBC Breakfast editor? So, you, you said that like you work in quite a manic way. Or yeah. what type of tasks do you carry out? And I'm also interested to know that if someone has worked on a, a story or a package, it's, they think it's going in, and then you have to like withdraw it. If, you know, if yeah. stuff changes. Do people get sort of upset because ultimately you are the decision maker or is it, or how do yeah, people you, take it?
1: You, you, I mean look, um, a typical day will start at five o'clock in the morning for me, that's a bit of a lie in sometimes. Wow. Um, and, I, I, and, and you know there, there's a whole fantastic team of journalists and technical staff and presenters who put the programme together. So the programme is a 24 hour a day, seven day a week operation, whether it's people planning, preparing stuff for the programme. Or the people putting the program out between 6 and 9.15 most mornings so in that sense I can't be there 24 7 and I rely therefore on a lot of very senior people to take some important decisions and we will regularly meet and discuss you know some of those decisions but I tend to get up about 5 o'clock in the morning I'm already aware of sort of what we've got planned for the program that morning because we've been discussing that the day before and I'll drive over to Manchester Um, and uh, get there just sort of half an hour after the programme has gone out and I've probably already had a conversation with one of the senior editorial team about whether anything's changed or what's different. The programme goes out and some days it's relatively straightforward in terms of not a lot has changed and the programme that you planned goes out and sometimes uh, uh, there's a lot of change. You know last week when the by-election in Hartlepool only came back at seven o'clock in the morning when it was expected to have come back at four o'clock in the morning. So suddenly you're dealing with a live event as opposed to to something that was meant to have already been sorted before you went on air. When the program's finished you have a little chat with the team who put it out together, review what's worked well, what what hasn't, maybe things that could have been better, praise the things that have done well. And then in effect the sort of the day begins again in that you get the team together at 10 o'clock and we start, we're thinking about, right, what are we gonna to do tomorrow morning? So whilst the rest of the news industry is thinking about what's happening today, <clears throat> we're already thinking about what's gonna be in the news tomorrow morning and you start to work and build a programme that uh, that you sort of think will reflect that. And sometimes you can second guess some stuff and sometimes things happen unexpectedly, at any hour of the day or night that you need to respond to and reflect and put in your programme. And that sometimes leads to items being dropped that maybe were planning to do or even items that you were planning to do that actually when you got them together weren't as good as you maybe thought they would be and therefore maybe we shouldn't put that out etc and and people you know or it might be a guest that you've booked and then sort of late on and you know I feel particularly sorry when it's sort of somebody who's got up quite early in the morning and you know you drop them at the last minute because something else has happened so inevitably people are disappointed or, 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 or upset but you you sort of you know try and explain to them the reasons behind it you know and, and whether that's about a guest or whether that's about a, a piece of content that one of your team has, has produced but we'll have those discussions all through the day and you know and, and you know about editorially what we should and shouldn't do as well as there are other management things you have to deal with as the editor you know ranging from uh, conversations with other parts of the BBC through to um, individual sort of staff issues, etc. Uh, and so I tend to be in the office until about seven in the evening, um, and then I'll drive home, uh, have a bit of a chill out, watch a bit of evening television, and then the day starts again. So that's a sort of a typical sort of day. It's, it's manic, it's busy, uh, it can change unexpectedly because it's sort of something you're not in control of, but it's a privilege to do it. You know, it's, I've been lucky. In, you know in the 30 years I've been in journalism I've had some brilliant jobs running lots of different very high-profile programs and everyone has been a privilege to do because um, you're dealing with individuals and stories and have a responsibility with the audience that I can think of very few other roles that would allow me to do that.
0: When um, Prince Philip passed away obviously yeah. the content had to change because yep. there was the time of mourning and everything and um, how obviously all the archives and that's already sort of pre-made how mm. was that just sort of doing him for so The, 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 the,
1: the Royal deaths are one of the um, uh, most important moments that all of us have, as journalists prepare for um, because they are significant moments in the life of the country just as general elections are and when there's a change in prime minister because u- ultimately you know the queen is the head of state and her her family are therefore very important members of of society and particularly with the queen and prince philip you know you think of how long they the queen has reigned for and how long uh, she was together with prince philip the vast majority of the audience have known nothing more than the queen and prince philip and you know, despite the level of complaints there were about the intensity of the BBC's coverage, <laughs> etc., which there's a whole different discussion about, the reality is, is it's a moment you know where society changes, and therefore getting the tone right about that, uh, and particularly with the BBC, which is inevitably going to get the largest audience, but getting the tone right about that, ensuring the coverage is respectful but also reflects. Um, what the nation is thinking and feeling is, is, is hugely important you know, and that, that will come from the type of guests you're booking, uh, what the presenters do, uh, the sorts of reports you run in the media aftermath and, and it's one of those moments that you prepare for and every, you know, of course could have come out any time yeah. of day or night and it's probably one that every broadcast journalist certainly everybody who works on TV or radio is sort of wary that it might happen on their shift didn't happen in BBC Breakfast time uh, but is, is a moment that you sort of think we need to get this right because there's a very famous moment when the Queen Mother died in back in the early 2000s and there was a whole row about a presenter who didn't have a black tie on at that time and that was felt as very disrespectful. Now you can have a whole separate debate about the rights and wrongs of that but it goes to show how a simple what some people would say is a mistake, can then get blown into sort of something that becomes a national debate and that you'll forever be remembered for. So, so there's a lot of pressure on the team to get things right because if you make a mistake, particularly if you're on the BBC, it can be, it can be brought out against you for many years to come.
0: Um, I wanted to ask personally how you deal with the huge pressure and responsibility on your shoulders like, from what you're saying, it is a stressful job. There's a lot of pressure tied to ever-changing deadlines. How do you switch off? Like, you've got it's your phones here, it, it, yeah, do you ever it's, switch
1: it's, off? No, no, suddenly I don't <laughs> have a switch off. It, but it, it, is it a pressure? It's, a, it's only a pressure you bring on yourself. It's, it's not pressure compared to people who work in, you know, somebody who goes down a coal mine, mine or a nurse who works in the NHS front line or, you know, my eldest daughter is a doctor who works in a hospital. You know, that, that's pressure to me. The the pressure the pressure on my job, some of it is self inflicted. I probably don't have to do the hours that I do, but some of the pressure is 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 yes, the pressure to, to do the job well. And I'd like to sort of think that if I regardless if I'd been the teacher that I wanted to be, or if I'd worked as an accountant because I was good at maths when I was a kid, I would bring the same pressure on me, right? But but it's it's a pressure that is it's about doing your job well, and that's, I go back go back to what we talked about at the start about parents, you know, they instilled in me, um, you know, a, a belief that, you know, you need to do the job as well as you can, you know, serving customers in a fish and chip shop and making sure that their food is as good a quality as they can have is a really important uh, thing, you know, if you get that wrong, you know, you could give somebody food poisoning. Well, that's not what you want to give them. So the pressure, the pressure you you put on yourself in any job, is a bit sort of self-inflicted. It is a huge responsibility. You know, you 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 know. I, I don't forget that you know six million watch a day, ten million watch every week. And therefore, if you get something wrong, um, that can have an impact on some people's lives about how they think about something or maybe something that they decide mm. to do or decide not to do. So th- that's a pressure of sorts. but it's a pressure that you know. If you approach the job professionally, if you do it to the best of your ability, on the whole, you should get it right. You won't always get it right. And when you get things wrong, apologize, learn from it, and move on. And I often say to young journalists when they come into the industry, when they start, you know, they will make mistakes. You will get things wrong, right? It's not really about the mistake. Obviously, we'll ask a question and sit down and work out why that happened, you know, what happened, etc. But for me, it's about whether they've learned from that mistake, whether they realize why that was important, that they should have got that right, what, went, what was involved and why they got it wrong. And actually how you judge people is how they learn from those knockbacks, how they learn from those mistakes. That's the more important thing. Obviously, you don't want the mistake to happen in the first place, and hopefully somebody more experienced might have intervened at some point and stopped that mistake from happening. But that's not always possible. The important thing is learn from the mistakes and move on.
0: When you can go on holiday again and you have like a yeah. time off, will you sort of leave everything or do you watch the programme every yeah, day? I, what I, do you- yeah,
1: I, I, I uh, much as I, it, it would be a lie, uh, uh, I'd, be, <coughs> I'd be told of my family if, they, if I sort of said, oh, of course I switch off. No, I don't. I, you know, I tend to, and it's probably worse now because with mobile phones, you can mm. scroll on the internet. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to break away from the programme. It's not always possible but I will have skyplussed it when I'm you know away and then I'll watch it on rewind when I when I get back partly because I want to know what's gone on and what's yeah. been happening etc but yeah everybody, look I, I'm I'm my worst I'm my worst manager of myself you should switch off I don't but you know I often will say to my staff when they go on holiday and thankfully most of them do do this when you go on holiday take a break relax recharge your batteries you'll feel a lot better when you come back for it
0: And then finally, I wanted to ask what you think the future of news broadcasts, news programmes is. You know, we've got GB News launching very soon. Quite a lot of senior journalists have left Mm -hmm. BBC ITV to to go there. Um, Do you think the future is broadcast? I mean, we're getting it on our phones a lot as well, aren't we? Well,
1: look, look, how you broadcast, you know, uh, is forever changing. So, as I said at the start, when I began my career there was no internet there was no social media there was no websites you would either you know buy a paper listen to the radio or watch tv and and obviously therefore the number of people doing any of those uh, was significantly higher I think the future uh, is will always change and therefore the way we communicate with each other Uh, The way we get news and information will always change and there will always be people who will, whether that's newspapers launching, websites being created or TV news programmes or TV channels um, establishing. I think the important bit and the bit that probably concerns me the most is that issue around trust. You know, journalism uh, only works if you trust it and my worry in the last few years has been how... Uh, increasingly, through some quite divisive times, uh, there's been a cons- and, uh, there's been a concern about trust in in media. I've <coughs> spent 30 years <coughs> and never been told what to do by somebody else. Never been told by some secret society somewhere what <coughs> what to say or what not to say. You choose your editorial values based on what you think is right for the audience. Um, you won't always have that audience who will agree with you but what you try to do is tell it in the most fair and balanced way and my worry is 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 that that trust needs to be maintained because you know increasingly and you see this on on something unregulated like social media you see a lot of fake stories going around stories that can be quite damaging you know whether that story is about you know, the impact of vaccinations, or, or mm. stories about what has happened politically, um, and and that fake news uh, can be quite damaging in the in the trust in society, and can have some quite serious consequences. I can say this on behalf of my colleagues at the BBC, ITV, Sky. You know that we are you know held to high standards. We are regulated by authorities that we are. We have to answer to and that we do our best to tell it in a fair and balanced way that's my biggest worry about about the future i think there'll always be tv there'll always be radio there'll always be online it may be that people get their news and information in different ways but trusting the news sources that you get it from is the most important thing
0: oh i think that's a really good point to leave it on and I just want to thank you again for. Yeah, it's been time. great chatting, Lucy. Thank you. And
1: thank you for the tea and the shortbread.
0: <laughs> wow, wasn't he absolutely incredible and someone who I really, really admire? That was Richard Frediani. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm Lucy Baxter, and this was from a Lancashire Lass. You know, master, you know, master, you know, to keep up to date with all things from Alanxia Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at From a Lass.